and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today on the Folklore Podcast we're having another guest speaker episode, and this one comes from a conference which was organised by the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle, Cornwall in the United Kingdom on the 12th and 13th of May of 2018. This conference was called Ritual Magic, and it was in support of the exhibition that was held in the museum's temporary exhibition space in 2018, entitled Dew of Heaven, Objects of Ritual Magic. The speakers at the Ritual Magic conference obviously addressed this particular theme in many ways. Before we start, if you don't know too much about the museum, I'll give a little bit of history about uh, its coming about. The Witchcraft Museum was originally created by Cecil Williamson and started its life in Stratford-upon-Avon before relocating to the Isle of Man following opposition from the Stratford community. This was in 1951 and was under the name of the Folklore Centre of Superstition and Witchcraft. It was to undergo further transformations and relocations before finally settling in Boscastle's picturesque harbour in Cornwall in 1960. The museum continued under the ownership of Cecil Williamson until 1996, when it was sold to Graham King. Handover took place at midnight on Halloween. One of the big changes that Graham decided to make was in removing from display the skeleton of someone identified as Joan Witt, or White, a local witch, and giving her a proper burial. Joan was born in Bodmin in Cornwall in 1775, and was sometimes known as the Fighting Fairy Woman, She was well known as a clairvoyant, and also for her healing abilities, and for this she would often use traditional clouties, cloth strips from the person who suffered illness. These would be tied to a tree to rot, and as they did so the illness was hoped to leave the body. Joan became ill herself as she developed a tooth abscess. This caused her to become very ill-tempered, and she would often get involved in fights. At one point, she was put into prison for this, where she sadly died of pneumonia. She was just 38. It is said that her bones were taken from her grave and used for seances and parlour games. Now, this story may or may not be apocryphal. We'll never know for certain. People visiting the museum at the time that the skeleton was displayed would sometimes report unexplained events, such as poltergeist phenomena. Graham buried the bones locally, marking the spot with a simple gravestone, showing birth and death dates, and the message, no longer abused. There is some discussion as to whether the skeleton that was buried was indeed that of Joan White, or whether the bones came from another source. The museum has a library also, and as with the main building itself, this started its life as Cecil's private collection. It has grown and developed over the years as many donations have come in from both individuals and publishers. The present holdings number around 8,000, and while the majority of this number is bookstock, there are also DVDs, audio recordings and magazines or journals. There are a number of rare items kept, some very obscure but hard to find due to initial limited print runs. Notable stock includes a first edition Harry Potter book signed by the author, a number of old books from the collection of Robert Lenkiewicz, and early editions of the books of practitioners, such as Alistair Crowley and Gerald Gardner. Very little is known about the early design of the space in which the library is housed, as there are no surviving photos in the museum archives. It is thought that the main library was a living room at one time, and the office was a bedroom. 
What is certain is that the library is a unique and invaluable resource which will continue to grow and provide important access for researchers for many years to come. Ownership of the museum passed on again fairly recently from Graham King to the present owner, Simon Costin, who also organises and owns the Museum of British Folklore. The museum is managed by Peter and Judith Hewitt, both of whom you've heard on the podcast before. Judith gave an interview in season one on Halloween folklore, and Peter just recently gave a guest lecture on witch bottles, which was recorded at the Apotropaic Conference in Salisbury. The Ritual Magic Conference is in support of the temporary exhibition that's held in the museum this year on that theme, and I would recommend anybody who's in the area go along and check it out, as it really is a fantastic resource. Many of the early displays in the museum were connected with the practices of what Cecil Williamson called the wayside witches. That is, the folk magic techniques of wise women and cunning men, for example. And that's the theme that our speaker on this episode of the podcast covered when he gave a lecture at the Ritual Magic Conference just recently. Today's talk is presented by Dan Harms. Dan is a librarian and author who lives in upstate New York. He's the co-author of The Necronomicon Files, the editor of The Long Lost Friend, and co-editor of The Book of Oberon. Dan's talk looks at these folk magic techniques by considering one person, a cunning man from Liverpool, who was called William Dawson Bellhouse. He lived between 1814 and 1870 and took on a number of roles during his time in Leeds, Liverpool and Southport in the UK. Those roles were magician, surgeon, professor, astrologer, galvanist. Bellhouse, who combined scientific and occult methodologies in his practice, had a chequered career of shady dealings, culminating in a newspaper expose. His personal magical workbook, the survival of which is uncommon among 19th century cunning folk, is now in the collection of the New York Public Library. The book provides a window into Bellhouse's methods and practices, derived from both popular tradition and printed works, including the Heptameron and the works of Agrippa. Its contents, including operations of crystallomancy, geomancy, spirit summoning and charms for healing, provide us with insights into the spiritual toolkit of a practitioner of ritual magic who worked for clients at the time. Here then is Dan with his talk, A Liverpool Cunning Man and His Magical Manual. Uh, So, um, this is exciting for me because this is the first time I think I've ever publicly talked about William Dawson Bellhouse. Um, I've known about his work for some time. I ran into his uh, Book of Magic at the New York Public Library. Um, they bis- At that point, they just had a box of archival material that was marked magic. And so they, you know, there were some, there were some manuscript uh, sort of works of magic from the 19th century. There were some Houdini letters, and there was some big magical seal. And at the, you know, at, at the start of the day when you went in to pick it up, they just hand it all to you. And I think they've realized that maybe this wasn't the best idea. Maybe they need to have a little bit more property control, but it was a lot more fun back then. Uh, so he's what we would call a cunning man. So for those of you who are not entirely familiar with the term, um, first of all, this is not a solitary individual. It's somebody who works within the community to um, uh, address various problems, um, usually known on a local basis, though some became more famous. It depended on you know their how 
how far the reputation spread and whether that reputation was good or bad. Um, learning and writing play strong roles with them. So, you know, you think about, say, what I'd call a charmer, which is a person who has this small corpus of, you know, short incantations passed out orally. Um, that, that would be another sort of um, magical practitioner. A cunning person, for them, um, the book is important, it, it, reading is important, writing is important, being able to display big, impressive books is important, even if you know, not all of them could read these necessarily, but that, that was often a strong component of their practice. And that practice included um, a wide variety of um, activities, including healing, love, divination, discovering witches, and kind of returning witchcraft, and treasure hunting. So, that's our overall, this is the overall picture of Cunning Folk. Now we're going to get to William Dawson Bellhouse himself, uh, who was baptized in Woodkirk St. Mary's on August 14th, 1814. So we're, 19th, we're in the 19th century right now. His mother dies in 1817. I did not catch when his father died, unfortunately. Uh, but so he lost his mother at a young age. Uh, later on, he moved to Leeds and became a shopkeeper. Um, it was when he married uh, Mary Richards in 1847 that it's noted that he was a shopkeeper at that time. Later, he moved to Templar Street in the same town. But he wasn't there for too long um, because he, in about 1815, moved to Liverpool. Um, he's got a couple of residences there. Um, one of them is quite close to the, um, the new city hall, I do believe. Um, and in that, while he was there, he served, he worked in various capacities. Um, he called himself a surgeon, a professor, and an astrologer, so he's working in all these sort of different fields. But most notably, he is proclaimed himself to be a galvanist. And, uh, you know, I think we're all famous with the experiments, experiment by Luigi Galvini, where he um, puts up, you know, attaches a battery to a frog's leg, and the frog's leg jerks, and then people start to have this, you know, huge debate about whether that was a property of the battery or that that was exciting the natural properties of the uh, electrical impulses in the actual creature. But um, there was still a lot people didn't know about this, and it was still seen as an operation for wonder, especially when they realized that, hey, if you can do this to a frog, what if we got somebody's body and we just put <laughs> the battery to it? And then, you know, they, they would have rich and fashionable people come in and, and view this. Of course, after a while, they I think the scientists start realizing that maybe this is not the reputation we wanted. <laughs> maybe this is not, you know, this, this is just, we really want to look into the, this a little bit more scientifically and less sensationally. But, of course, there were plenty of people who were willing to, you know, start exploring ways to treat, um, uh, say, you know, various conditions with electricity, or to just astound people with electrical marvels who were not scientists and who just, you know, they, they put together their own devices and they, they marketed them. So, and Bellhouse was one of these. Um, so he begins his practice by 1851. Once again, right after he gets to Liverpool, um, he creates... Baths and batteries for uses at home. This was something they would actually do. You'd have a bath, and then you'd have, and you would then, yeah, you would uh, then put the electricity through the bath, and apparently people, this was 
somewhat popular. Um, and he had some difficulty at first, because you could see some of his early testimonials would say, you know, this is much better than the, um, this, this device is much better than the one you used to sell, which would really give us a, quite a heavy shock. Um, so, uh, but I, he seems to, they, people seem to have been happier with the later ones. He joined the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1854. Um, I forget what that is in its current incarnation, but I got in touch with them. They don't know how he got in, um, <laughs> but he did. Um, and uh, I think he's actually on the rolls for years after he dies, so maybe they just weren't keeping very careful track. Um, he is noted for one work, which is 10 Minutes Reading on Medical Galvanism, uh, published circa 1855. It is liberally lifted from a number of other works on the topic. Um, so... Uh, there, you can see that you know he's got quite an interesting set of um, activities going on already. Um, but he was so successful, at least in uh, Liverpool, that he was actually able to go up to Southport and start his own uh, another practice out there, and then kind of commuted back and forth. Um, and in one of the works he lifted, you've got this passage in which the author complains about these you know people who are selling these electrical devices for one or two pounds, and you know they. You know, there's just cheap junk. And so he, so Bellhouse goes through, lifts that pass, lifts that, you know, the larger passage, takes out that bit, and in the back of this, actually starts, you know, selling this for one pound ten, this particular <laughs> one. So, you know, he's, you know, he, he's not afraid to, um, you know, make a buck off of that. Yeah, so this is, this was what he wanted to present himself as. If, if you look for Bellhouse in the newspapers at the time, you're not going to see, uh, you're not going to see a lot about astrology or magic or anything like that. You're going to see him presenting himself as a galvanist. That's what he wanted to be known as. So, uh, but that wasn't all that was going on with him. And there was a point where he got some unwanted attention. And it was sort of his fault, but sort of not. Um, in 1856, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this case, um, there was a cunning man named Henry Harrison who was uh, working on behalf of a gentleman named William Dove from Leeds. And one point they were in a public house, and uh, Harrison was reading aloud from the newspaper this account of um, a husband poisoning, I believe it was his wife, with arsenic. And Dove thought that was a great idea because he wasn't getting along very well with his <laughs> wife. And maybe he had actually come to um, Harrison about marriage. I can't remember quite right now. But really, Harrison was just sort of along for the ride on this. Um, but so Dove goes out, he poisons his wife, and what we what we learn from this is that if you're going to poison someone with arsenic, don't go around to everybody you know just talking about how how poisonous arsenic is and how dangerous you think it is. Because uh, people will catch on. It's also a good idea if you're the family doctor hasn't made a specialty about detecting arsenic poison. And, uh, so, so all this goes badly. He, goes, he ends up in court, and, uh, but then they also come down on Harrison because he's doing all these you know, questionable cunning man activities. So, you know, we've got to do something about him. Not about, I don't know, not so much about the guy who's people poisoning others with arsenic. Well, we probably should do something about that, too. But, so... This starts this major popular campaign to really, you know, stamp down on cunning practice. As part of this, um, we had a series of exposés in the Liverpool Mercury by Hugh Shimon, 
who was actually um, did a lot of you know work on things like dance halls and you know corruptors of popular morals and it, it, that sort of thing. So he goes out and he starts talking to people around this area, and we're going to uh, Caduceus at some. We're working on getting this published, and I think. Ben said he wants to put some of these, um, this, this series of articles in publication, which I hope gets in there, because they are some fascinating articles. It's a whole series discussing what were the practices of um, cunning folk at the time in, in that particular, in Liverpool area. And um, I don't think it's been material that anybody has ever really dealt with before or delved into. I just kind of, I was looking over that when I was prepping for this, and it was, it's some great stuff. Um, so let's, let's get into this. Okay, so this is all, and it never <laughs> says it's Bell House, but, you know, it's okay. So it's in Liverpool, somebody working with, you know, electricity and magic. And it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of things that you can kind of put together. It's probably about four or five different details. And you, you, you're pretty certain that this is a description of Bell House. Um, his residence, being in a fine open thoroughfare, he anticipated the objection of standing in the street waiting for admission and had a spring door latch attached to the bell so that when the bell was pulled, the door flew open and thus his visitors were enabled to pass in unobserved. So, okay, so that's, that's the first step we're going to see him. He's, he's got his waiting room and people are waiting, you know, of all classes of society are waiting in there. He had been annoyed by their impertinently listening at the door of his sanctum. To put a stop to this, he attached the wires of a powerful galvanic battery to the handle of his door and to a metal plate at the entrance. This soon repulsed the intruders, and the very ignorant thought, the devil was in the house. <laughs> All right. So once you get inside the sanctum, what does that look like? His sanctum was more respectably furnished than the generality of rooms devoted to such purposes. And remember, Shimon is going around to, you know, different... He's kind of infiltrating this world and going to these, you know, these different practitioners. Uh, so he has a good idea of what's going on. But he was more than a fortune teller. Not only lay the horologue, the planisphere, and the crystal on his table, but scientific instruments of unquestionable value were there also imposingly displayed. Drug jars with Latin inscriptions decorated some of the shelves of his library, for he did a little in the doctoring way, as well as in the scientific <laughs> His library chiefly consisted of choice works on magic and the occult sciences. All right, so I guess the question at this point, since we're talking about ritual magic, is what he practiced. So um, he didn't get too far into it, but it was there. He professed to have commenced the study of magic as an enthusiast and to have fasted the necessary time preparatory to forming and entering the circle. The circle he professed to have entered, but as none of the results he anticipated followed, he was now thoroughly skeptical as to magical science. Yet he practiced it in relation to charms and the crystal, for he found solemn formulae made many of his inquirers impressionables. So, and we'll get into that a little bit. So, um, this is published, and as it happens, he's just, Bellhouse has just left town. <laughs> Possibly, I don't know whether because he knew this was coming out or not, but, um, he was also getting into some sort of uh, legal trouble because I said he was going back and forth between two different uh, two different offices, and he rented out most of the Liverpool house to a lady. But then his Southport practice wasn't working out, and he wanted her out. But the terms of the lease didn't allow it, so he changed the terms of the lease, and then he sold off her furniture, and he didn't own it. And so they went to the they went to, he went to court, and it was interesting because 
apparently, based on what the description is in the newspapers of that of that trial, people knew him locally as an astrologer. They didn't know, and it doesn't seem that the galvanism came up at all. So that would, I think, you know, of course, it's hard to tell based on a newspaper account of the trial what exactly is going on. But um, that seems to, people seem to have, there, it seems to have been known locally, despite the fact he was, you know, publishing and advertising constantly about, you know, all these electrical gadgets he had. People still recognize that he was, he was an astrologer. Um, so he left Liverpool. And he spent some time in Denver. He went back to Leeds, which was probably, I think there was got to be a good reason, because that's the place where that whole, you know, the whole affair of William Dove happened. So if he was trying to get away from people who were not fond of cunning people, that was exactly the wrong thing to do. So, but, um, so he spent some time in Denver's prison when he got there. Um, but he did continue his galvanic pursuits. He did, you know, he did, I don't know about his other sorts of operations. That's where the record kind of goes blank. Uh, but, of course, cunning men usually don't come into the record unless something has gone wrong. Uh, but um, he's still advertising for, you know, galvanism and these galvanic pursuits. And uh, he, in, he dies in 1870 in Woodkirk, back in the very parish where he was born. So, uh, so that's about Bellhouse himself, but I want to get now into his book of magic. Um, once again, this is at the New York Public Library. No, I don't know how it got there. I think it came into the collection in the 50s. Um, so this is, you know, this is sort of his, he put in a nice title page, and uh, of course, there's a little, I, what I interpret as a hesitation mark right here, because it should be a complete system of magic, but it looks like there's a C there, so the New York Public Library has catalyzed the, categorized this as um, a complete schism of magic. <laughs> so um, I probably could have done with a little better penmanship right there. But it says um, you got William W.D. Bellhouse, astrological professor and magician. And it's got a little seal with his address on it, which was that very helpful in you know, being able to make sure that this person was indeed this, this other person who was in Liverpool and um, do, performing these operations. This was actually in one work used as evidence that... Um, in early 19th century America that, you know, there were people who, went, you know, who had manuals of magic and were, um, you know, casting ritual magic, which was true broadly, but it's not true for this book, and I just kind of wish I'd taken a closer look at it. Okay, so talking about his sources, um, if you look up here, you could see three books of occult philosophy, the Heptameron, on geomancy, uh, the Magus, Discovery of Witchcraft, Mysterious Sigillorum, I believe that's correct. Um, there's also some traditional charms. I believe that something like the old Alfire in Frost charm, if you're familiar with that, that's that's in there. And there's also some interest. There's an interesting operation for creating a wax image. Um, I think for love, which you then put next to the fire. And that was particularly fascinating to me because later, I mean, I started out with him, and then I started getting more into the um, early modern manuscripts, and I started finding that one show up so often. So Apparently he got this from this is this is unpublished, so he got this from a, a manuscript from somewhere else. So and it was able to incorporate it in to his own work. I don't know if he actually did it, but I, given what we just heard about him, you know, being very unhappy with his magical practice, I don't know how far he got into it. And given that this book dates to about 1851, and the newspaper article came out what 1856 or. I'd have to go back and look, but you know, he didn't have a whole lot of time to practice magic. Um, 
but let's let's go forward a little bit. But he does have some interesting things in this book. Um, one of which is this is a um, diagram. It's based on an astrological diagram. But what he he did was he would put a crystal in the middle of this. And one of the nice things about looking at the actual physical book, and of course maybe I'm wrong about this, but this is just so this is kind of a sort of layman's opinion in a sense. This page. When you look at this page and the pages around it, this one seems to be more faded. So it's almost as if he had the book out, and he would have it flat, and was placing the crystal on the page to be able to work. So that was kind of neat to, to figure out. Um, so there was a lot of crystal gazing within his practice. And what he would do, and this is a, a very sort of unusual thing if you're thinking about this, if, you have a, if you're steeped in the ritual magic uh, tradition, because ritual magicians often think, okay, well, if you're going to have this crystal, you're going to want to make sure that, you know, the scryer is someone who is, you know, pure, a child, a pregnant woman, someone who's specially prepared, um, someone who's a special knack for it. But what seems to have happened with a lot of cunning people with their practice, you know, down through the centuries in, the, in England, is that they would just put the crystal in the client's hand and say, there you go. Tell me if you see anything. And sometimes that was because um, people, you know, would naturally, might naturally just believe they saw something in it. Maybe they were naturally, you know, scryers. Sometimes they would put a little picture underneath and just hand that to, to the person with it. Like, oh, yeah, I, I, I see who that is. Um, but, um, yeah, so this was actually something, you know, that, that happened uh, quite a bit. Now, this one's interesting. Uh, I don't think I've seen this anywhere else, which is a charge to clear the glass. Now, you see a lot of consecrations and blessings for crystals. What you don't see a lot of is uh, rituals for dealing with the fact that somebody messed with the crystal, or, but, you know, just used it for some dark purpose, and now you want to have it back because you really like it, but, um, but, but you don't, re but yet, so you have to reset it, basically. And this is, this, this appears in the book as a method of doing that, so I thought that was particularly interesting. Right. Um, we've got some planetary seals here, so um, uh, there. And he was not particularly careful. I have found some of these where I went back through. You know, I was I was you know double checking and triple checking them as we're getting the book ready. And there are some serious errors in the magical swearing. And you know, he, he just so which is makes me wonder how committed he really was. But he was committed enough to write them all down. At least, so um, you know, he put the, he put did you know he did put some work into this book. He just wasn't particularly careful. And I when when this is published as well, the Latin is the Latin. When I started reading, it was just horrible. When he was pulling incantations out of hip town, I'm like, okay, so I just put notes there. So then we're not giving you that. That's just it was so it was so corrupted. It wasn't even worth it. And we just have this very quick. Um, Galvanic operation at the very end of the book. And you don't. This is not the sort of person who took a who would take his you know ritual magic and his galvanism and put it together and make some Karnacki style electric pentagram, which I was really hoping for. But, you know, but this, so this is the this is about the, as much overlap as you get. And in terms of the as we talked about the furnishings of his of his consultation room. So, so that's that's what we've got there. And as I said, he never melded those together. And I never felt that he was particularly good at any of these things. He's not like a Renaissance individual. Uh, because we talked about the problems with the electric, the galvanic devices. He doesn't really seem to have gotten out of ritual magic. 
One of the things that Shimon found when he was going around talking to the other astrologers is they, they just thought he did a horrible job with, um, you know, with his, with his astrological charts, and maybe that was professional jealousy. You know, there's no way to tell. Um, he does seem to have been able to make some sort of living off of this, nonetheless, and was able to keep going. He did. I don't think there was, aside from that time in debtor's prison, there was never a time when the whole thing, his whole sort of complex of the various items he was working on collapsed. He seems to have been, you know, going at this for for a very long time. And it, I also think it's interesting the sort of theatricality through just the position of being able to bring through, begin what appeared to be the latest science with, you know, magical techniques and astrology and all these other things and, you know, titles like surgeon and professor, which after a certain point you have to stop using because people start to get a lot more picky about who's called a surgeon. Uh, but, you know, he, he was trying to just grab it, you know, to legitimize his practice, he was gra grabbing all sorts of things from different, um, from different sort of realms to put them all together. And, yes, diversify. <laughs> okay. Right, so um, that's all I have in case, unless anybody cares about witch bottles. Does anyone care about witch bottles? Okay, people care about witch bottles. All right, so let's go to the next one. Okay, I, I don't think I need to explain to this one what witch bottles are. Okay, but we're going to go to his witch bottle. Okay, I'm going to read this so you don't, so you, you don't have to try to get your, you know, your uh, camera to take a very detailed photo. Okay. Cut a little hair of the nape of the neck of the afflicted person or party bewitched, and with parings of finger and toenails and some of his blood and three quarters, three quarts of his water, a chain of seven links, the middle links turned down, and the heart of a fowl fresh and three new needles and three new pins, take them and stick them in the heart, a few rusty nails and card's teeth, then take three pennyworth of aquafortis, Three penny worth of vitriol, three penny worth of French flies, three penny worth of brimstone, three penny worth of devil's dung, three penny worth of dragon's blood, and in smaller bottles put three drams of each. Those must be all put in a strong bottle that withstands fire or a pan. And this is something you see with some, you know, with which bottles is that you can have very similar procedures that use a pan. This is nice because it kind of bridges those two. Um, boil them in a small, slow fire until all is consumed. The chain must be half red hot before it is put in. Stir it with a hot, red hot poker five or six times and say, turning the poker these words, which, 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 I thee burn, or I thee kill, in hellfire, if thou dost not leave this person alone, in evil terms of thyself. Thou shalt feel the wrath of God forevermore. Amen. After this, read the 70th Psalm. If a pan is used, scrape all well out and bring it at the north side of the house, and this will finish it. 70th Psalm. So, um... What I find interesting about this is, one, you, you do get some, occasionally find an actual witch bottle incantation that was used by practitioners, but they're very few and far between. And also because this one is so incredibly detailed. And you don't, I mean, in a lot of cases, you don't see anything like this. You know, it's okay, so you've got the urine, you've got the pens, you've got the bottle, okay, good. That's, that's where a lot of people just leave it off. But this is, this is, this is just amazing as far as I'm concerned. And what I'm, and one of the things we'd like to do with this is we're, um, when we publish this work, is we're going to do a little work on those bottles with it. And because I think, I think it's good to have this sort of thing get out because, you know, you're having archaeologists find these objects. And I'm just curious if some of them could be tested for any of this sort of, you know, these substances. So we could tell how, 
know, how much of this is a local innovation and how much of this is something that's practiced on a wider basis. Well, that's all I've got. Thank you very much. <laughs>